Well, what does it look like to be ready for Christ's return? What does it look like to be ready for Christ to come back to this earth? You know, last week we considered that Christ is coming again. The coming of the Son of Man will be final. It will be sudden. It will take many people by surprise. No one knows the day or the hour. And therefore, Jesus' instruction to us was to always be ready. So are you ready this morning? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? It will be sudden. It will be final. But what does it look like to be ready? What does it look like to be ready for the coming of Christ? This is where Jesus turns in the second part of Matthew 25. Now, we thought about a little bit last week that the first and foremost thing to be ready for the coming of Christ is to believe upon Christ, to hear and believe the gospel, that we are sinners, that we have broken the laws of a holy God and that our sin deserves an eternal punishment. And that there is no escaping from this punishment except by the blood of Christ, by his death on the cross for us. We thought about the necessity of believing and taking Christ as our Savior, as we sung about a moment ago. That I, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. As we go before the court of God, Christ alone and his righteousness, his death for our sins is enough to save us. Do you believe that this morning? Are you trusting in him? Is he your savior and your Lord? That's the first thing to being ready for his coming. The Bible warns us about misplaced faith. You know, trusting in anything other than Christ, including our own our own good deeds. You know, maybe thinking like, okay, I, you know, Jesus did his part, but if, unless I do my part, you know, I'm not going to get in. I've got to do enough. Well, that's misplaced faith. You're trusting something other than Christ to bring you to heaven. And that, that road only leads to hell. There is only salvation in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We're saved not by our works, as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say, but we're saved by grace through faith. And this not of ourselves. It is the, the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the Bible warns us about a misplaced faith, but the Bible also warns us of another danger, the danger of a counterfeit faith, a dead faith. How would you know if you have a, a dead faith, a counterfeit faith? Would you know? You know, would you, have the, would you walk around with this feeling, you know, like, I think, I think my faith is fake. The Bible teaches us that many people will show up before King Jesus on the day of judgment, and they'll be very surprised because all along they thought they were good with God. They thought they were ready to stand before him only to find out too late that they were unprepared. And to hear his words, depart from me, I never knew you. 
We don't want to have a misplaced faith. We don't want to have a counterfeit faith, what the book of James calls a dead faith. So what does a dead faith look like? Is there, are there ways we can recognize it? In the Bible, thankfully, God gives us clear warning signs by which we could tell and see kind of like check engine lights on your dashboard or, or caution barriers that, hey, if, if you see these things, watch out. Danger ahead. Now, a living faith, a true faith, a saving faith, as opposed to a dead faith, a, a true faith, the Bible teaches, is a faith that produces a changed life. Because it puts you in touch with God and God changes you from the inside out. He changes your desires. He changes the decisions you make. Listen, no one who comes to the cross and truly gets reconciled to God walks away and, and just the same as they were before. You can't have, you can't have such a, a change of relationship with the King of Kings and just be the same. Your life will change. Well, this morning, as we think about what it means to be ready for the coming of Christ, what it looks like to be ready, Jesus warns us, what he's warning us here of is a dead faith, a counterfeit faith. You know, as we read the passage that we're about to read, uh, if we were to isolate it from the rest of Scripture, and we, we were to leave out all the other truths that God teaches us about salvation and how to be ready for God's coming, we might say, we might think that this is just teaching us, hey, do good deeds and you'll go to heaven. But that is not what Jesus is saying. We have to interpret scripture by scripture. We have to let all of the, the pieces come together and show us the full picture of what it means to be ready for Christ's coming. And so the, just keep, bear that in mind this morning as we read Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. If you'd like to turn there at this time, Matthew 25, we'll be starting in verse 14. We'll read down to the end of the chapter that Jesus is he's showing us what it looks like to be truly saved, what your life will begin to look like, how you can know if you have truly believed and you are truly prepared to face God. Matthew 25. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, I believe you can find this on page 780. 780 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 25. And as we read, I would ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus is continuing to speak about the kingdom of heaven and what it will be like. And he says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. 
But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servants, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who had, has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You may be seated.
Well, these verses are showing us what readiness for Christ's coming looks like. And, it, and they're showing us that readiness for Christ's coming, it looks like an, a, a life of active service to God. It looks like a life of active service to God. And this is our first main point this morning if you're taking notes. Being ready for Christ's coming, those who are ready, what their lives look like, they look like those who are actively serving God. This is what God produces in the life of everyone who truly believes. Those he justifies, he also sanctifies by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those he causes to be born again, he also causes to resemble the character of their heavenly Father. A life of active service to God. We have in the first story this morning, starting in verse 14, the story of a master and three servants. And the master, he's about to depart on a journey. But before he leaves, he entrusts portions of his wealth to three of his servants. As verse 15 says, each according to his ability. He gives the first servant five talents, the second two talents, and the third one talent. Now a talent is a, a weight measure of money. And a single talent would have been worth, we, we think, about 20 years of wages for the average laborer. So that's a lot of money. This, this master is very wealthy and he's entrusting a lot to these servants. So just to give you an idea of the equivalent the rough equivalent of the amounts of money if we were to tell this story in modern-day America. So in 2021, uh, according to one website, the average wage and salary per full-time employee in the United States was about 75000 U.S. dollars. So that's the average salary, according to one site. Now, the amount given to each of these servants, if we were to take the average salary in the U.S., would have been about $7.5 million, $3 million, and $1.5 million. So the point is, he's giving these guys a lot of money. He's entrusting to them a lot. And now, the, ex the expectation is that they would be good stewards of what he's given to them. He's giving it to them in different amounts, each according to their ability. Each according to their ability. And so what does that imply? Well, if he's giving it to them according to their abilities, he's trusting them to do something with it, to invest it well. Hey, like bring me back some profits, right? Do some business. He's putting them in charge of his assets. And, and then he goes away. He leaves them to their work. Now, the first servant, he invests his master, master's money wisely, and he doubles the amount, and so does the second. But then we see this, the third servant. What's he doing in the backyard with that shovel? Well, he's, he's burying his master's money in the ground? Now, back in the day, this is what you'd do if you really wanted to keep the money safe and you know, hide it from the robbers. You'd go dig a hole in the ground and put it in the ground. And it would be safe from being stolen, but also, you know, there's not going to be any profit from this money. You know, it's, it's not going to make anything. Eventually, the master returns to settle accounts 
to both of the first two servants, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But then along comes this third servant who kept his master's money safe but also didn't do anything with it. And he says to him, he calls him wicked and and slothful or lazy. And we know that this third servant, whenever he's walking up to his master, we know that he starts to feel a little guilty. We know that he starts to realize, well, I've, I've done something wrong here. Because what does he do? He starts to make excuses. He comes up with all these excuses in verse 24, if you look there, to try to defend his, his action or rather his lack of action. So he says, Master, I knew you to be a, a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And then here you have what is yours. So basically, what this third servant is doing is he's, he's kind of insults his master. He insults him in order to make himself look better, try to defend his, his actions. He's basically saying, like, you harvest other people's gardens. And so I was afraid to, to serve you. I was afraid to do anything for you. So I just hid your money in the ground. But his excuses, they don't impress his master. But let's, let's just run with his excuse for a moment. The master, you know, first of all, he calls him out. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. And then he, he goes on, he says, you know, let's just, if, if we were to assume this is true, if I was such a man, even, even then, your excuse, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Because if I was such a man, you might at least put my money in the bank and I would get interest from it. If I'm so obsessed with making profits that I'm willing to harvest other people's gardens, then at least you could have put my money in the bank. Give me a little bit of, a little bit of interest from it. The real problem was that this servant was wicked and lazy. Rather than doing his job, rather than serving the master, he had other more important things to do like pursuing his own comfort, relaxing. He, he didn't want to bother with working for his boss. He didn't want to bother with taking the risks involved that come with, with seeking a profit. And so he did nothing. He took the way that in the short term looked easy and safe and comfortable. But in the end, where did it get him? Well, we see that the, the master says, you know, take what was, take, take that from him, give it to the one who made the most. Verse 29, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I think what that's saying, what that simply means is that those who do not have anything to show for their attachment to Jesus, in the end, they'll be finally exposed. And even what attachment they seemed to have to the kingdom of God, and the rewards of it will be taken from them at the last. And what about the servant himself? Verse 30 says, he gives the order, he says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. Doesn't sound like a very good place to be exiled to. The outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. There's no, listen, there's no party in hell. The suffering is too great. There are only the sounds of crying and agony and grinding your teeth in pain. This is what it is to be cast out of the kingdom when Christ returns. Now notice, very importantly, that the third servant, he isn't condemned for something he did, in this story anyways, but it's what he didn't do. It's what he failed to do. Here's the story. It's the, the wicked and, and lazy servants. You know, we can be, we will be judged for the sins we commit. Like if God tells us, you know, you shall not steal and we go out and steal, all right? That's a sin of commission. But we will also be judged for sins of omission when God commands us to love our neighbor and love our enemy and serve those around us and we fail to do it because we're so consumed with seeking our own comfort. This is what's presented as, as the test here. This is how you can tell if someone has true faith or not. It's not just what they avoid doing, but what do they do? Where is their love being exercised in action? A living faith, you know, if, if the tree is alive, it won't just avoid producing poisonous fruit. It will start to produce good fruit. And that's how you know if the, if the fruit tree is alive and and well, it's what the servant doesn't do that costs him in the end. You know, just as, just as water flows downhill and wind moves the branches of trees, those who truly believe in God will be changed. That's one of the lessons here for us. But we might ask, okay, well, again... We see here the call to be actively serving God, and this is what, this is what it looks like to be truly saved. But let's get a little more clear clarity here. Let's, let's make this, this picture even clearer. What does active service to God look like? I mean, how do I know if I'm actively serving God? The parable of the talents shows us that what we don't do says something about our readiness to face God. But in the next section, in this next scene that Jesus presents to us, we see more of these details filled in. In which, and in, in, uh, starting in verse 31, Jesus pulls back the curtains of heaven. He gives us a, a look into the future. It's like we're time traveling. And he shows us what will happen at the end. This is a scene from your future and mine. What's it look like to hide your talent in the ground? Well, this brings us to our second main lesson. Active service to God looks like serving the least of Christ's family. Active service to God looks like serving the least of Christ's family, the least of these his brethren. Failing to actively serve God looks like failing to serve the least of Christ's 
family. So look with me at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Now Jesus, he had introduced the, the parables as he often did with the saying, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, he gives no, no such introduction here. This seems to be more or less just a, he's just speaking very straightforwardly with us, not in allegories and images, but this is just a scene from the future. He will sit on a glorious throne judging the world. They gave him a cross and a crown at his first coming, a crown of thorns, but here he sits with the full legions of the heavenly angels in his company. Heaven has been, has been emptied out for this occasion. And Jesus sits on a glorious throne, and before him the whole world, the living and the dead, and none will escape that court summons, no matter how important you have been in this life. And the risen Christ will separate people. He will have the final say. Now he, he separates them as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, and he places the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left and Leon Morris notes the significance of this. He says the right-hand side was generally seen as the favored side. For example, to be at, at the ruler's right hand was to be at, in the place of highest honor that the ruler could give. And the left was thought of as the side of ill omen, the side of ill favor. The king blesses those he has separated to the right. He says to them in verse 34, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to those on the left, he says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The judge issues two sentences, two destinations for the whole of mankind. And it's the one who was crucified. Then his nail-pierced hand brings down the gavel of judgment for the final time. And there is no altering his sentence. His word is final. Your eternal destiny will be in his hand on that day. Now there are some who would seek to deny that there is eternal punishment for the unconverted. Um, I remember going back and forth with uh, someone I knew years ago, and uh, they, they were trying to argue that, you know, hell is not eternal. There's no such thing as eternal hell. And they, they made their case based on the word eternal. Here in verse 46, in, uh, it, it can be translated as age, most of the time, when it's used in the Bible, this Greek word is translated as eternal. It very clearly is speaking of everlasting. But in some cases, in some rare instances, it can be translated as just a long period of time. And so they've tried to argue, some have, that the punishment of the unconverted is not really forever, that it will come to an end at some point. And, and that eventually, maybe they'll just cease to exist, or maybe they'll 
you know, they'll finish paying for their sins and they'll come into heaven, you know, in the end. But there are many problems with such an idea. We don't even have time to go into all the problems that this presents biblically, if, if you were to take this view. But for one, I think one of the most obvious problems with this view is that the same word that shows us how long the, the wicked are punished also shows us how long the righteous live forever. In verse 46, it says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so listen, if, if hell is not forever, then neither is heaven. Neither is heaven. Now the Bible clearly presents that on this day, people will be separated forever, and there they will remain forever, either in heaven or in hell, forever. So, as the defendants take their place before the judge, what evidence is brought forth? What facts are brought up that either acquit them or condemn them before the judgment seat of God? What, the, the evidence of, the, of their genuineness is brought forth. Do they truly believe? Or is their faith a dead faith, a worthless, deceptive, false confidence, counterfeit faith? And what's the evidence? What's the evidence that's brought forth? Is it that they've avoided falling into some great sin in a moment of great temptation? Is it that they've done some great deed of service to God's truth, maybe, maybe spoken out boldly against some heresy? Is it that they've courageously confronted evil, not backing down for a moment? Is it that they have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains? No. What is the evidence that's brought forth? To the blessed ones on the right hand, he says in verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And to the condemned and the cursed ones on his left, he says in verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Active service. Once again, the charge brought forth before the condemned is what they failed to do, what they did not do. That's the most glaring evidence that they do not belong to Christ. Now, who are these people that, as Jesus says, as for as much as you've done it under the one of the least of these my brothers, you've done it unto me? Who's he talking about there? Because that's very important. I mean, if the evidence of our genuineness, evidence of whether or not we're truly saved, if it has to do with our treatment of such people, well, we better know who they are, right? Well, there are two views that are widely taken. One view says that the least of these, my brethren, is basically anyone in need. Anyone in need. And the other view is that Jesus is 
especially, specifically speaking of his followers here, when he says, the least of these, my brethren. And I, I tend to take this second view because Jesus, if you recall earlier in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 12, he had answered a man who had informed him, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. They want to they speak with you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus speaks of his disciples, his followers, all of those who follow Jesus as his brethren, his family. And so it seems very clear to me that it is Christians, followers of Christ, that Jesus especially has in mind here when he speaks of the least of these, his brethren. He's speaking of his followers, and especially when he says the least of these, the smallest of these. He's speaking of the, the lowest and most insignificant of them the neediest and poorest of their number. Now, of course, don't take this to mean that, hey, you know, we can treat people that aren't Christians as bad as we want. You know, like, that, that would be like the, the attitude of the Pharisee that came to Jesus, or the, the scribe, and wishing to justify himself. He's like, and who is my neighbor? You know, who, who, who do I really have to, be, have to love, and who can I get away with not loving? Obviously, the, the, whole, the whole tenor of Jesus' teaching is, is love to our neighbor and even to our enemy, even to those who are outside of the faith. And yet, there is a, there is a priority, as Galatians 6.10 tells us, that as we have opportunity, we must do good to all men, to all people. But then it says, and especially, especially prioritizing the household of faith especially other Christians. So I think what Jesus has in mind here in particular is how are you treating my family? That's, that's the test, and especially the least of them. How do you treat the least Christian, the least follower of Christ? The poor, the sick, the persecuted. Do we despise such people? Are we willing to identify with them? Are we willing to enter into their sufferings and, and share in bearing their burdens if need be in order to serve them? Do we love them despite the fact that they can't do anything to repay us? Is it enough that we, that we simply love them for Christ's sake because he loves them and because they're part of his family? Do you only love those who can repay you in some way? Do you only do good to those who can do good to you back? That's not a very good test of whether or not you have the love of God in you. Even selfish people do that. Is it enough that they belong to Christ? Do we love them for his sake, no matter who they are, no matter how needy they are, no matter how difficult it is to love them and to care for them and to serve them? Christ tests our love with those who cannot repay us. You know, think about, he mentions, I was in prison and you visited me. Now, at this time, Christians were beginning to be persecuted and being put in prison for their faith. And what would it have looked like? What would it have looked like 
to go and visit someone who the authorities had put in prison for their faith. And here you are, maybe bringing them a meal. That would cast suspicion on you. I mean, you're risking being associated with this, somebody who's being seen as an enemy of the state. You could be thrown in prison for that. Are we willing to still serve such people even when it may cost us? Or do we try to avoid such people? Are we too busy with our own lives, our own selfish agendas, that we don't even have time to notice those who are in need? Notice the surprise of the condemned people as Jesus reads out their charges, how they've neglected him. They say in verse 44, when, Lord, when? How many will be surprised on that day? They thought, they thought they were serving God, perhaps. But really, they were just using God to serve themselves. They used the church when it was advantageous to them. But when their love for Christ was really put to the test, it was missing in action. And if you don't have love, the scriptures are clear, you don't have Christ. You've not been born again. For genuine faith in Christ always produces love, just as sure as water flows downhill. It is by our love that all people will know that we're Christ's disciples. It is by our love that we will be seen to have been Christ's true followers on the day of judgment. It is by our love that our claim to, when we say, hey, I believe, I'm a Christian, our love tells the true story of whether or not we have truly believed or if our faith is a dead faith, a counterfeit faith. Notice the similar surprise of the blessed ones on Jesus' right. In verse 37, they say, Lord, when did we do these things for you? You see, they weren't keeping score. They weren't trying to get brownie points with God. They weren't sitting there saying, I've done all this for God. Look at what I've done. No, their, their whole attitude is, I've done so little for God. I've done nothing. Like, he's done so much for me. How could I ever repay him? There's no sense of entitlement with them. They're surprised. God, when have we, when have we served you? They'd received great grace. They'd been given massive mercy. And they loved their Savior. And so... Their hearts were so filled with love that they, that they were willingly serving others. Not to try to earn God's favor, but simply out of gratitude to Him. And now, Lord, when? When did we do all these things for you? We feel that we've done so little, even nothing, for such a gracious God and Savior as you. So let me encourage you this morning. Perhaps, perhaps maybe you... You see at times, perhaps, when you are loving people, but you're like, man, I just, I do so little. I would love to do more. I want to comfort and encourage you if that is your attitude. If, if, you're, if your attitude is, man, God has done so much for me. How could, I, how could I even begin to repay him? I would like to do more. Lord, show me. But if your attitude is, I've done all this for God. Where's, where's my reward? Why is my life so difficult? Watch out. That's a big red warning sign. 
Now, you might be wondering, where are the, the least of Christ's brethren? You know, maybe I don't, there's not some imprisoned Christian that I know. There's, I don't, maybe I don't know a Christian who's lacking a meal. Maybe you do, though. If you really thought about it, do you know somebody who is lacking in the daily necessities of life? As Christ said, you always have the poor with you. I think sometimes we, we don't have eyes to see the need around us because we're so busy seeking our own interests. But I don't believe that the least of these, my brethren, is only referring to those who are just in need of like food and water or a place to sleep at night. Perhaps they need company. I was in prison and you visited me. Maybe they're not in prison, but maybe they're in need of a friend. I, the point is that if we're truly loving Christ, we will be loving and caring for his people. We'll be alert to the needs they have, needs of every kind, and especially those, we'll even and especially love those who are hard to love and who, you know, we don't get a whole bunch of, a bunch back. It's like we go and, and we feel like we're being spent we spend time with these people, perhaps. You know, they're, they're, they're requiring a lot of us. Perhaps we feel weary at the end of the day when we spend time around these people. And yet, Christ says, you're doing it for me in such cases. Maybe there, maybe there are those around you, members of Christ's family. Maybe they're not struggling with physical poverty, but maybe they have needs of another sort. Maybe they're Maybe they're spiritually impoverished and they struggle with this or that sin or weakness and you just find it hard to be around them. I mean, you know, you know how it is. You have some friends and you just go and you're like, man, I just love being around this person. They just encourage me so much. And then there's other people, maybe there's other people in the church that you go and you spend a day with them and you're just like, man. They've got such a hard life. Like, I, I come away and I'm just burdened with their burdens. That's what it looks like to love people. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's there where your love is put to the test. Do we truly care for such people? Are we compassionately moving towards such people? Maybe not for their own sake, just because we enjoy spending time with them, but for Christ's sake, out of love for him. Or do we self-protectively move away, looking for easier relationships, looking for calmer waters? I love the, the study that um, Brother Joe's been leading us through, relationships, a mess worth making. Relationships are hard, they're messy, and yet it is into the mess, it is into the, the difficulty that we're called because Christ hasn't given us a little dose of love. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And we're called to love others with the love with which he's shown us, which is a generous love. And so this will mean look, not just looking out for our own interests, but living in such a way where we're looking out for the interests of others, especially those who are most needy, especially those who aren't the flashiest people, maybe not the most talented, those who cannot repay us, loving them for Christ's sake. 
It's there that our love for Christ is seen or not seen. And if we don't have love, we don't have faith. This is what it looks like to live in readiness for Christ's return. Are you ready? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, you will love him. And if you love him, you will love his people. And that love will show itself in actions, in what we do, not merely what we avoid doing, in what we do, not just in what we say. Brothers and sisters, let us love not only in word, but in deed also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, as we think about this and as we think about how much you value the, even the least of your brethren, the least of your family, Father, Lord, help us to love them as well for your sake. Lord, you have loved us and given yourself for us. So, Lord, help us to love others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.